Great. Thank you so much, Rianne. Um, hello, everybody. Good morning. Um, as has been said, my name is Nat. Um, we're going to be continuing our Sermon on the Mount series this morning. We're going to be looking at um, anxiety. It's a huge, hot cultural topic for us at the moment. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, whether that's in book form or in digital format, if you want to go to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 34. If you haven't got a Bible with you, do not worry because the words will appear on the screen for you. Just in terms of framing anxiety before we really look into the passage, just some couple of statistics for you. The first one being that in 2013, there were 8.2 million cases of anxiety alone in the UK. And in a 2014 survey, they found that the prevalence of someone suffering from anxiety for a week at least was at 6.6%. So imagine that was like seven, eight, nine years ago. Imagine what it might be like now in 2021 in the face of the pandemic we've all just been living through and still living through. And it's easy to forget that sometimes when we look at statistics like that, that anxiety is an individual thing. It's something that affects each and every single one of us, um, that those who suffer from it. It's something that I have struggled with personally as a child. Um, I was quite an anxious kid. Um, and it still comes from time to time, waves of irrational, perhaps sort of anxiety hit me. Um, even as recently as about nine or ten months ago, um, I was at work, um, working from home, and I opened up my laptop looked at my emails and I had a whole inbox full of emails that were urgent that I needed to sort of you know, respond to quickly. I had to respond to it in the right way, some of them were you know, quite diplomatic in how I was going to phrase stuff and it just felt completely overwhelmed and um, Fran then found me in the bathroom uh, where I shut myself in crying. Um, so it's something that affects us all <laughs> and if you feel like it affects you then I understand because it affects me too. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' words. Why Jesus' words? Because if you're not a Christian and you're tuning in perhaps for the first time or you've just stumbled across this in YouTube one night because you're a bit bored, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the Son of God, if, he, if all things were made for him and through him, his words and principles should therefore be timeless. And he wants us to flourish, even amongst a cultural backdrop where we have economic, social, racial, political, environmental distress and distrust. So let's now look at the passage together. I'm going to read it from the ESV, starting at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Praise God. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Breaking news, Jesus doesn't want you to be anxious. He says it three times, in matter of fact, which means he's probably taking this statement quite seriously. But how? 
How? How am I supposed to not be anxious? It's okay being saying don't be anxious, but, but how am I ever going to do that? Let's just take a step back before we go into the how and let's look at what is anxiety. What is the word that Jesus is using here for anxiety? So when Jesus says the word anxious, the Greek word for this is something called marimin, marimnau, marimneo. I'm not very good at pronouncing the Greek, so apologies if you are a Greek scholar. I've probably butchered the language for you. But what it sort of means, according to the commentator Scott McKnight, is that it's an internal disturbance at the emotional and psychological level that disrupts life. Something that really gets in the way of you being able to live the life that you want to lead. And Jesus is talking about this to an audience a gathering of people, disciples, probably some more people come to join in and listening to what he's saying at this point in time in the sermon. And they, and he's obviously they must be experiencing anxiety because why else would Jesus be talking about it? What kind of anxieties might they have experienced? I started to sort of go through my head sort of thinking what kind of things might they have been um, anxious about in first century Palestine? A lot of it probably would have been basic needs. How am I going to get money to feed my family? How am I going to get money to clothe my children? How am I going to provide for myself, provide for my elderly relatives? There's probably an issue about status and lifestyle. Every week they would have gone to synagogue and surely they would have wanted to have been wearing the best clothing or showing off something that they've got, a new accessory, to show that they're proving their status, proving their sort of lavish lifestyle that they might be able to leave. That people might know who they are. They've probably been nervous about the future, Currently at this time, they were under Roman occupation. There were sort of lots of um, Roman soldiers walking around day by day. They were probably been very, very anxious about what might happen to them as they were walking down the streets. Which leads me to this other idea, of, other point I thought of, of racial tensions. Got this Jewish community that have existed quite happily for a long time. And now these Roman soldiers are in, across the border are Samaritans that they totally distrust. And then there's also the Gentiles, you know, anyone that's a foreigner to them. There'd been a lot of distrust going around. And I kind of thought, wow, it's not that dissimilar, is it? Some of us, sadly, in the UK still are probably concerned about, am I going to get enough money to feed my family and feed my children, to clothe them? Am I going to be able to get and follow the latest fashion trend to make sure that I can show that I'm able to keep up with the, with the times and be cool and edgy? As you can tell, I am not very cool or edgy because I'm using terms like cool and edgy. Probably nervous about the future we've currently been in the occupation of a pandemic of a virus that we can't see but it's in it's intruded on our lives and made us worry about how we went about walking down the street are we too close to people the economic status now of our nation on the impact of that and actually probably on ourselves too maybe you've been furloughed maybe you've lost your job maybe you're still searching for a job and it's hard and lastly of all sadly still just like then there are probably there are still racial tensions existing today so anxiety has always existed. It's been a fundamental blight in our human condition. And Jesus here, as well as saying, do not be anxious, gives us some truth, some wisdom to help fight these inevitable waves of anxiety and to help us to, as the term we've been using throughout this whole series, to flourish. And the tools and the wisdom that he gives us helps us build a toolkit and it goes beyond self-help. I think it actually touches at something far deeper, a complete paradigm shift at the center and core of our being. Now, when I was preparing a sermon, as Duncan and my wife Fran will be able to testify to, I had so much stuff I could have spoken about. I'd actually had more than an hour's worth of content. So if you do want to have like a director's cut, you know, want to speak to me afterwards, 
Speak to me afterwards, you're not here. So if you want to message me afterwards, then perhaps I can go through the stuff with you if you're interested. But I've got three key things that I think Jesus wants us to get a grip on. First one is that you are valuable. I'm looking at verses 26 and then 28 through to 30 for this. Jesus starts off with an argument based in nature to combat anxiety. And he uses the example of birds and of flowers to prove that created things testify to the providence of God. Birds do work, they do try to store things, but ultimately what is needed for them is already available. The berries on the bushes, the worms in the ground, they are ordained for the birds to be able to go and pick them up to feed themselves and feed their families. And Jesus then sort of frames it by saying, well, if this is the case, if my heavenly father feeds them, are you not of more value than they? It's a rhetorical question to get us thinking. Is my value actually greater than the birds? And thankfully, the answer is yes. Let's go back to the beginning of time. Let's go back to, if we're using a nature argument, we'll we'll go back to when nature first began. So we'll go back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at that story. When God made all of the different creatures that now exist upon the earth, only humans are made in the image of God. And only humans are the ones that are actually able to converse with God. That is, you can't say that for the birds. As much as they sw- sing very sweet songs and the pigs go oink and the cows go moo as some of the songs I sing with my kids, they aren't able to converse with God like you or I. We are different. We are actually indeed special. We are made in the image of God. And God wants this to happen because he wants this relationship with you and he wants to prove through relationship not just general providence he wants to prove that you're value to him and prove that by actually not just valuing you but treasuring you because there's a difference there to value is like knowing that it's important whereas treasuring is like how you relate to it god wants to relate to you he thinks that you are valuable beyond just the general providence of god And then he goes on to extend this argument in verses 28 to 30 by looking at flowers, lilies. Now, the word lilies, you know, when I think of lilies, they're really beautiful flowers. And you go to a florist or a supermarket if you're a bit of a cheapskate like me. And you can then, you know, again, give them to your loved ones. And they're usually very well cared for. They've been cut and they've been able to be shaped. But the Greek word for lilies here is actually another Greek word. Apologies again for my pronunciation. Crinon. Crinon. Crinon? I don't know. Anyway, it means wildflowers. So to think about it, you know, wildflowers are the ones that grow in the meadows that have had no human interaction whatsoever. They've purely been planted in the ground. They've then had to be in the right place at the right time with the right conditions to grow, to flourish, and to be sustained. These things do nothing to receive God's providence. Not even, you know, we get to converse with God, the birds have to do some work. These guys do nothing. They just happen to be in the ground and they grow. And yet, God is then, Jesus is then saying that these guys are far more glorious than Solomon. Now, you might be thinking, who? Who's Solomon? Well, just to give a bit of context, he was, and when Jesus was speaking, Solomon was probably the wealthiest man that had ever lived on the earth at the time. And um, I'm a trainee accountant, so I find maths interesting. And I found a website that actually converts the value of the land and possessions that people might have owned and then converted it into sort of today's economy and you know, effects of inflation as well. So Solomon's net worth, here we go, drum roll, it was more than 2.2 
trillion dollars. $2.2 trillion. Just to frame that for us, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, probably the most wealthiest man that exists today, Solomon's worth is 11, at least 11.4 times worth more. Such was the wealth of Solomon, the man who could be able to purchase anything. If there was a new fashion trend, he'd be on it. If he needed food, he'd be able to get it. If there was a new culture or a new cuisine that hadn't, he'd never tried before, he would be able to get a hold of it. If there was a new car that he wanted, he'd be able to get a hold of it, not that there were cars back then. He's the kind of guy that, Insta- that people on Instagram and uh, people who had products would be paying, saying, Solomon, please advertise this on your Instagram page. People want to see this because you are the guy, you are the man, you've got so much wealth. And yet, the wildflowers in the meadow that do nothing, can purchase nothing for themselves, are more beautiful and more complete. Just going to take a step back for a minute. I just want to speak into the heart of anxiety if, about based upon image right now. Because it's so important. The age that we live in is so centered around the image and the way that we present ourselves, you know, show ourselves off. Social media allows us to have little window frames into our lives, into each other's lives that aren't necessarily full and complete. But I know that it can really impact the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we view ourselves. And I want you to know that if you open Instagram and then you have floods of anxious thoughts hitting you in your head that you cannot shake, I want you to know that God thinks that you are beautiful just as you are. No filter, no accessory needed, no lip filler or other beauty enhancement needed. You are beautiful to God just as you are. Do not be anxious about your image. God, who has seen everything and knows everybody, thinks you're beautiful. And the next thing he then goes and says is that we actually are then given more than any wildflower. That actually we are then, the framing here is about clothing. And he says, but if God, this is verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And it made me think, what kind of stuff has God clothed us in? And actually, what he's done for us is being able to give us something that deals with the greatest enemy we could ever face, which is death itself. And he does this as a gift to us, purely through giving. God overflowing in love from the beginning of time. God the Father, Son and Spirit living together in harmony and in overflow of love decides to build and create people that would also be able to join in this loving relationship, being able to converse with God. He sees his creation, sees the need for him to come, he sees the need for intervention. The father gives his son willingly. The son comes to us willingly. He wants you, you are valuable to him, he treasures you. And he decides that how to get how best to overcome the issues that we face being able to actually have this relationship with God is the stuff that we call sin the stuff that gets in the way the crud the rubbish that clouds our view of God Jesus dealt with it once and for all at the cross and it is down there and it's now been left there for all time and that's not enough for Jesus he then actually got up again once he died, he then came back to life. He was resurrected. And now the Father continues to graciously provide for us, though we have never deserved it, never earned it, never bought it. And it's a continued outpouring of his love. As Derek spoke about in one of our past, in the sermons that happened recently, in chapter 7, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask? It's so easy to miss it. 
in this sermon where we just fear the words, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, but you are being given something so valuable, so precious, and it's free. You don't have to buy it. $2.2 trillion is not going to get you anywhere. It's completely free of charge. And why? Because you're valuable. Jesus has dealt with your past and he's gone. Do not be anxious about it anymore. And that's not enough for Jesus because he then wants us to live in the reality of that today in the present. But he does it by dealing with our future too, which leads me to my second point, which is eternity. And this is in verse 25. And I'm going to go to the end of verse 25 is that question of, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And I believe in this moment, Jesus is asking his listeners to think eternally, to think with eternity in mind. Because even if you're not a Christian, the general idea of God is that he's a guy that's existed forever and ever and ever and ever. And I could keep saying ever and ever forever. And we are now invited into eternity through Jesus. Because you see, when Jesus died and dealt with our mess, dealt with our sin, and then rose back to life, he now invites you to come into it and to step into it. Probably best summed up by that very famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is something that cannot be taken away, cannot fade away. So therefore, if your past has been dealt with, if your future is now being secured through Jesus, you don't have to be anxious about the present either. Because let's face it, the worst thing that could happen to you or I in this life is that we would die. And I'm not wishing that upon you. But even if we did die, and if we've got our faith in Jesus, Paul then actually says that for now, for us to die is now to gain Because once we die, we then get to step into eternity. And that is an eternity in the presence of God, fully with him, seeing him face to face with no more suffering, no more tears, no more shame, no more pain, no more anxiety. He secured your future. It is certain. It is done. And if so Jesus is saying in this passage that the life is eternal therefore it's more than food it's more than the present and is the body not more than clothing because he's not talking about just your body here now he's talking about your resurrected body the one that we will get to inhabit and be in and live in throughout the rest of our days in heaven with all of the saints before Jesus before that throne all singing as we were singing just a minute ago holy 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 is he so right now your reality is actually far bigger than the reality that you're, you're in The lie of materialism in our society is that what we have now is it, and that is all we have. But Jesus is giving you something far greater. And not only is he giving you an eternity and dealing with your past and telling you and reminding you that you are valuable, he then gives us a purpose if we go forward into verse 33, which is that he then tells us to seek God and his righteousness, actually seek his kingdom, sorry. This righteousness is not necessarily like seeking to be justified with God because that's already been dealt with. I've just spoken about that. It's more about having our lives and our behaviors in line with God's nature. And all of this, this verse 33, links back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which is that those that hunger and thirst will be blessed because they will be satisfied. 
Jonathan Pennington sums it up in probably the best way in that he says, the final solution then to anxiety is to set one's heart and mind to seeking God's way of being in the world and his coming reign, which promises to result in all of one's needs being truly met. It's not a simplistic stop worrying, but it's a redirecting of disciples' vision to proper heart orientation accompanied by a promise of provision. The answer is then, to combat anxiety is that deep paradigm shift in your heart to look upon not just the general provider for all the created things but the one who provides for you the pinnacle of his creation the most treasured possession that he has and through him only we can find a way of flourishing and what it takes is putting him and his kingdom first and this is the point of this sermon on the mount really in, in a nutshell is that if we put him first then we get all that we need because our heavenly father knows and cares for you. And it sounds anxiety inducing, doesn't it? I'm not going to store anything anymore. I'm going to completely give everything to God. I'm going to put all of it in his hands and I'm not going to care about anything. That might be how you feel right now or how you feel like what I'm saying is coming across. But actually, really, it's about being anxiety reducing. We put ourselves in the hands of an eternal, loving, caring Father who is for you and is with you in your past, in your present, and he's more than certain going to be there in your future. And that gives us enough to frame our perspective now to be able to live in the light of eternity. But what does this look like practically in our lives? Because although it can be quite easy to say, let's look at our lives and from framing it for the whole of, you know, eternity and looking it from God's view which is that he sees the whole vista of history but it's quite hard sometimes to get to that point and to live in that place and I know that for myself so three things that sprung to mind were fill your head fill your heart and fill your house not literally I'll talk about what I mean by that in a minute so fill your head two things really fill it with verses and reminders of truth there's nothing else in this world that we can say hand on heart is fundamentally true other than the words that are written in this Bible. This here shows you, as Helena was saying, it shows us the heart of God towards us. And that is one of love, one of care, one of provision. For me, one of the passages that I go to regularly is Ephesians 1. I can't get enough of it. Every time I go back there, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, now I know who I am. Now I know where I stand with God. So, wouldn't want to put a guarantee on it, but I guarantee that you will be, for the, if you go to Ephesians 1, or a passage that you know speaks to you and gives you life, it will really help you. And secondly, is to think about what you think about. Sometimes when I get myself into a rut, I need to ask myself five whys. Why am I feeling like this? Which will then probably uncover you know, what's going on. Well, why am I worried about that? And often, once I go down that chain of asking myself why, it usually leads me to a place of going, actually, I'm probably worried because I don't trust that God has got it for me. I don't trust that he's going to be there for me. And this is the whole point of this sermon, this bit of the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is trying to deal with that orphan heart and that orphan way of thinking. You are a child of God. Second thing is to fill your heart. So that, for me, means prayer and presence. It means praying to God, talking to him about this stuff, being in his presence, whether that be through worship or just being in conversing with him, going for a walk in your bedroom, whatever that looks like for you. 
There's a verse in 1 Peter 5 verse 7 where it talks about that we cast our anxieties onto God. Once we're in that place of talking with him, we cast them, throw them, launch them, chuck them onto God. And as um, the Passion Translation then adds these three words, which I love, and we leave them there. Put your worries onto God and leave them there. Continue to pray about it. By all means, don't stop praying, but don't fret. Every time you feel that rise of anxiety again, go back, cast it onto God. Keep it there. He can deal with it. And the last thing is to fill your house. And I'm not encouraging antinomianism. I'm not saying, chuck away the guidance about COVID. You know, let's step into stage four now whilst we can. I'm talking about, you know, keeping the phrase that came to mind was like keeping your house in order, which sort of for me means like your community and your locality. And I mean is in surround yourself with people you can talk to about this stuff. The whole point of all of this is that we should be talking about it, living in community. The whole point of this Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus goes on to, I think it's really sum up, summed up best when you look at examples in Acts 2 and Acts 4, is that there's a community of believers that share everything they have and they are talking and living life together. They're living this stuff out. So please, if you are feeling anxious, don't hold it to yourself. Talk about it. Find people you trust, people you love, people you respect. Share your burdens. We are encouraged to bear with one another. And then together with your friends, you can bring it to Jesus. And what I'd encourage you to do is to keep the conversation going. Don't just do it once and leave it there and think it's dealt with. Your friend is not God. And with God, sometimes we have to keep going back to him because the, feeling and the feelings and the waves and the thoughts keep coming back. So keep talking about it. Keep talking about it. Even if you feel like, oh my word, I'm pestering this person for the hundredth time about the same thing. Do it. Do it. Because your life here now, Jesus wants you to flourish. And the reason we can do any of this, the reason we can have any of this is because of what's been given. The band want to come up. We can only be anxiety-free because of what God has given to us. The reminders that we are valuable. The reminders that our lives are now set on an eternal course with our past, present, and future there to be dealt with and in hand. And a lot of this comes down to who we trust. Anxiety is often born out of distrust, and it's rife in our day and age. It's rife now in some of the lives of people that I know because people have let them down. And it's hard to trust when people are let you down. And all we can really go on with God is his words in this big book. His promises, again, in this big book, the ones that he now speaks over us to. And actually, all of himself, all of himself is there for you. So give him a try. He doesn't want you to be anxious. We can only trust him. Nothing else in this world will ever be able to deal with the root of anxiety than God. Because nothing else will ever deal with our past, solidify our future, and therefore enable us to live out in the present. Any, no one else can do that apart from God. Only he can. I'm going to hand over to the band. We're going to sing a song in response to what we've heard. We're going to sing and declare that there's nothing better, and that he is the only one who can. And that we put our hope and our trust firmly in him, the one who can turn graves into gardens, the one who can turn bones into flesh, the one who sees the whole vista of history and yet still intimately cares about you. I'm going to come back afterwards. We're going to pray about it, but let's sing together first. <laughs>